Would you thank our praise team and our worship team again? Every week, they just... I mean, I know it's going to be better in heaven, but I don't know how it can be any better. If you're a guest today, you're coming in on the end of a series that we've been doing now. This is the sixth week of it, and obviously I can't repeat everything that we've learned in this five weeks so far, and we have this week and next week we're going to end the series, but just to bring you up to date a little bit, we've been talking about our encounters with evil, and, and not just the ones that we hear about in the, uh, on, on the TV uh, uh, news reports or we read about on the internet or in the newspaper, we're, we're talking about evil that is active in our individual lives. And there's a source of all that evil, and we know him as Satan. We know him as a devil. Now, our culture has tried to make a, a, a kind of a comedic character out of the devil. And our entertainment business has used him to create horror films and demonic films and things like that. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that Satan is a real being. And he's very active in every person's life. Jesus described him in John's biography of Jesus' life, the fourth book in the New Testament, as a thief. And John 10.10 says that he has a sole purpose. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. We discovered that he wants to steal our devotion to God. He wants to get us away from God and in a close, intimate relationship with him. Because when he can steal our devotion, then he's free to kill our dreams and to destroy, ultimately, our destiny. And so because he's active every single day in our life, and today you, you might be experiencing one of those seasons of life that everything's going pretty good for you. But understand that even if that's true, Satan is active, and he's working on you, and he's waging war against you to steal your devotion to God, to kill your dreams, and to destroy your destiny. So we begin the last couple weeks talking about the defenses God has given us to wage war against this insidious presence in our life. The Bible says that we need to put on the whole armor of God. God has given us armor. God has given us weaponry so that Satan cannot bombard us successfully with devastation and, and discouragement and defeatism and doubt and, 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 and distractions and delay in our lives. But it is the armor of God that we've got to fight. Why? Because we're fighting a spiritual battle. Therefore, Paul trying to get this idea across to Christians who were living in the city of Corinth in a second letter that he wrote to them that we call 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 10, verse 4, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. It's not the weapons we think about warfare, the weapons that come to mind, you know, you know M1 rifles and uh, smart bombs and aircraft and ships and Navy SEALs and all those kind of things. Because we're not fighting a war against flesh and blood. We're fighting a spiritual war against a very evil spiritual power. And so therefore, God has given us weapons that are divinely powered to break strongholds. And those strongholds are the strongholds that Satan tries to bring into our lives. He tries to control us, to bring us down. And it's the spiritual weapons that God has given us that have the power to break that control, to break those strongholds in our life. Things like excessive discouragement and, and defeat about ourselves and doubt about God and all these other things that we've talked about. But we need to put on that armor. That's a choice. Now, Paul, in warning yet another group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, is trying to get them to understand this spiritual battle that's going on. And he's trying to teach them about the weapons that God has given to all Christians over all generations. 
to battle this evil influence. And he's trying to help them to understand things that they can't understand. So he's using the image of a Roman soldier, all dressed out in the battle gear of that day. And the Roman soldier was the most intimidating presence on the face of the earth when it came to battle and warfare. Rome was the imperial power of the world at the time. And so what Paul's doing is he's taking each element of the soldier's uniform and he's ascribing to it a spiritual weapon. And that's the imagery that we're looking at and we'll continue to look at today and end with next week. Now, so far, Paul described the first part of a Roman soldier as the belt. And the belt was very important, as it is even today in combat, because weapons are hung on the belt and ammunition is hung on the belt. And back in that time, the Roman soldier, uh, the soldier's sword was on the belt and his dagger was on the belt. And the belt makes sure that that loose-flowing tunic that was his outer garment didn't get caught up or trip him up in battle. And our belt then is called the belt of truth, the spiritual application to this physical object we discovered last week was total commitment to the cause of Christ. In other words, we have to choose who we're going to follow. Throughout this series, we, we've recited this phrase over and over again, that I get the right to choose, I have the right to choose who controls my life. In other words, there's two contrasting powers who are trying to influence my life, God on one hand and Satan on the other hand. And I get to choose. You get to choose which side has, has the strength and which side has the influence in your life. But last week, we concluded with this thought about the belt of truth, that at some point, I've got to decide. I've got to decide. I've got to choose who controls my life. And that's putting the belt of truth on it, saying, God, I'm going to choose you. I'm not going to be a double-minded warrior. I'm not going to have a double allegiance because that's not going to work. It doesn't work in, in conventional warfare, and it doesn't work in spiritual warfare. You've got to know who you're fighting to, and you've got to take an oath of office to that army. And that's what the belt of truth represents. Now, today, we're going to look at some more armor. We're going to look at three more pieces of armor today. And we've got to move quickly, so, so keep up with me. Paul goes on, then, and he says... In Ephesians 6, verse 14, he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. He says, first, you've got to have the belt of truth on. You've got to know who, whose side you're on. Then you need to put the breastplate of righteousness on. Now, the breastplate was a vital part of the Roman soldier's armament. And the breastplate would protect his vital organs, his heart, his lungs, his liver, his kidneys, from, from arrow attack and, and from slashing the swords and, and all that kind of thing. So it would literally protect the most important organs in his body. Our breastplate of righteousness is designed to protect the most important part of our spiritual lives, our soul and our spirit. And he says, look what he says. He says, you have to have the breastplate of righteousness in place. It's got to be in place. Now, when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, what is that? Well, it actually exists in two forms. The first form, and and, and the most important part of the breastplate of righteousness is, and let me throw a theological term at you, is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is this. I'll make it simple for you, because I know this is a theological kind of term. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness that God bestows upon us, the righteousness that God covers us with. That's God's righteousness 
in the form of a robe that he surrounds us with and places on us. Paul, writing a letter to the church in Corinth again, in that same second letter we looked at a little bit ago, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? That's when, remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? One of the things that he yelled out was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it wasn't the physical pain that he was going through. It was the spiritual pain he was going through at that moment. Because at that moment, God put all the sin of all generations of mankind onto Jesus. And Jesus, who was sinless, who had never committed a sin, became sin. And when he became sin, God had to turn his back because God can't have fellowship with sin. And that was our problem. That's why Jesus had to come. Because we were sinners and God couldn't have fellowship with us eternally. And so God had to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't change the fact that we'd already sinned. So God sent a Savior to die on the cross. And when the Savior died on the cross, he took upon him sin. God made him sin. Why? That we, it goes on to say, in him might become the righteousness of God. See, what God does then is he takes his own righteousness and he robes us with that righteousness. And that righteousness covers our unrighteousness that's underneath it. Why? Because we continue to sin, right? You know, Satan says, you don't love God and you fail God and you do this and you that. And he's right. He's not saying lies. He's right. And in that condition, we could not spend eternity with God. We could have no fellowship with God. So God, through Jesus Christ, covers our unrighteousness with his own righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. That's the imputed breastplate of righteousness that we have to have in place. The Bible goes on to say that this righteousness comes from God. This is a righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ and our faith in him. In other words, it's a righteousness that we don't earn. It's a righteousness that God gives us because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. That happens the moment I transfer my confidence off of myself and my own ability to work and get myself to heaven. And I instead trust Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That's that righteousness that comes from God. That's imputed righteousness. God covers our unrighteousness with his own righteousness. And that has to be in place. Why? Because once that in place, Satan's ultimate goal to destroy our eternal destiny has been thwarted. Because now we are covered with God's righteousness. He no longer sees our righteousness. Instead, he sees the righteousness that Jesus bought us on the cross. And when we die, it is that righteousness that is our ticket, that is our key into the eternal kingdom of God. But not only... Do we have imputed righteousness? God also calls us to have a practical righteousness. Imputed righteousness is what God gives us. Practical righteousness is the part that we play in putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Practical righteousness is our behavior, it's our conduct. Practical righteousness is our choosing what God has commanded us to do, what God has uh, taught us to do, what God desires for us to do, instead of what our flesh wants to do. 
See, we got these two parties always warring with us. Satan's always tempting us to do what he wants us to do, and God is always exhorting us to do what he wants us to do. And our practical righteousness is choosing God over Satan, over ourself, over our flesh. That's why Paul says that we need to, to present our bodies, the parts of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness. In other words, we need to use our eyes to look at things that will feed our righteousness. We need to use our ears to listen to things that will fuel our righteousness. We need to use our hands to do righteous works. We need our feet to take us to places that involve righteousness and good conduct. Offer the parts of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Why? Peter, one of the original apostles of Jesus Christ, warned us in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone to devour. Remember, Satan's not like God. Satan's not omnipresent like God. God's spirit is everywhere at one time. That's why God can live in every one of us at the same time, through the Holy Spirit. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. There's nothing that God can't do. And also, God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. But Satan doesn't. Satan is a vulture. Satan's an opportunist. And what he's doing is he's looking and watching our behavior, and he's trying to cue off our behavior. It's okay, I've got it done. It's working now. Thank you. He cues off our behavior, and then that tells him when we're weak. That tells him when he can successfully come in and wage successfully his weapons of discouragement and doubt and defeat and and distraction and delay. We tip him off. But when we have that breastplate of righteousness imputed first, because that protects our eternal destiny, the other breastplate protects us from his attacks. Our practical righteousness, because now he sees us following the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Whenever we're tempted to do right or wrong, we know the answer, don't we? It's it's, it's never a secret. It's never, well, well, gee, is that right or that really? We know, because the Holy Spirit tells us. And so when he sees us respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit, Then he says, he's frustrated. He goes, I don't know where they're at. I don't know. Maybe they're vulnerable. Maybe they're not vulnerable. So then he what? He moves on. So that's why we need that that breastplate. So therefore, Acts 24, 16, encourages, admonishes us. And Paul says, so I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God. In other words, I always try to have that breastplate of practical righteousness on. I'm always trying to do my best to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit, to do what God has commanded me to do. That way, I'm not as vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. That breastplate of righteousness will protect me. It's a powerful piece of weaponry. But again, we have to choose to put it on. It's got to be in place. It starts with that imputed righteousness. It starts with trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. And until we do that, we're pretty helpless against Satan. And these other spiritual weapons aren't going to work. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the reason he brought you to this place today, was to give you that opportunity, and we will in just a moment. But most of us here have already done that, and so now we have a choice to put that piece of armor on. 
And maybe we haven't had that piece of armor on. Maybe we've been listening to our flesh. Maybe we've been listening to the voice of Satan. Maybe we've been doing things that we know God has been telling us not to do and encouraging us not to do, but we keep doing it anyhow. Now is our opportunity to put that breastplate on and foil Satan, frustrate Satan, confuse Satan. He goes on to say, in Ephesians 6.15, he begins to introduce another form of our armament. And that form of comes in the form of shoes. It says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I'm going to call it boots of peace. What a soldier wears in the combat on his feet or on her feet is extremely important. It's always been important. It always will be important, especially an infantryman, as Roman soldiers were. If your feet are not healthy, you are vulnerable to your enemy. If your feet are not healthy, you cannot support and defend your comrades on either side. If an entire unit's feet become unhealthy, you've got real problems. And it's always been a problem in warfare. In World War I and World War II, it was trench foot, fighting in the cold, damp area of Europe. They would develop trench foot and this infection that would set in. They couldn't walk. It was too painful. Blisters on their feet. During Vietnam, it was jungle rot. That hot tropical climate would cause the same thing. And the soldiers' feet would be paired. Back in the Roman days, the Roman soldiers would have a special shoe that they'd wear, a special sandal. It was very thick so that it would keep them from stepping on something that would poke up through the bottom of their shoe and, and, and cause their, their foot to be wounded and infected. Also, into the bottom of the leather, they had spikes that would help them with their footing. It was important that they not slip. It was important that they not fall. And so they had a special boot, a special shoe designed specifically for combat. And God has given us special footing to equip us to wage spiritual warfare. That's the boots of peace. There's three aspects of that weapon. The first one is peace with God. And you're going to see that this one is related to all the different weapons. The belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, later the helmet of salvation, now the, 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 the boots of peace. Peace with God. That, again, is through our faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we now have the, the imputed breastplate of righteousness is on because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. Now, why is that so important? Because Satan's constantly trying to get you to believe you're not at peace with God. That you don't have peace with God. That you've blown it one too many times. That God is upset with you. That God's disappointing you. That God is fed up with you. And God's giving you chance after chance after chance. And so no more, you're done. God's done with you. He's moved on to somebody else. See, he tr constantly tries to get us to believe that lie that we're not at peace with God. And yet, through our faith in Jesus Christ, God declares, yes, you are. We are in absolute peace because it's no longer based on your conduct. It's based on my promise to you. Therefore, Paul again encouraging the Romans in the same area in Romans chapter 8 verse 31 says, he said, what then shall we, or shall we say in response to this? What do we say in response to this armor of God and this warfare? That God really does love us and God, we are at peace with God. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's for me, 
There's nothing that can permeate God. God's the only one who's omnipotent. He's the one that's omnipresent. He's the one that's everywhere at one time. He's the one that controls my destiny. He's the one that controls my circumstances in my life. If God is for me, I don't have to worry about anybody else because I know that through Jesus Christ, I have peace with God and Satan. You're a liar when you tell me anything different than that. Now, peace with God will promote within us the peace of God. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is that amazing peace that God gives us in the most difficult circumstances of life. It's a peace that says passes understanding. Because a person without the breastplate of righteousness, a person without the shoes of peace, a person who had not established peace with God under those circumstances would have no hope. And things would look pretty dark and they would be tend to just fall into the abyss of depression and despair. But because we have peace with God, and we know that if God's for me, who can be against me? Then God also, through the Holy Spirit, fills us with the peace of God. And so we don't respond like people without hope. We don't respond like people who have no faith. God gives us an extra gear. And I see it so often in all of you. I, I see so many of you in the circumstances that you're, that you're marching through. And sometimes, even, even me as your pastor, I, I, I don't know how they keep walking. I don't know how they keep going. And then God reminds me, peace of God. It's because I'm in control. It's how we stand up against relational breakdowns. It's how we stand up and stay connected with God through ill health and through losing our job, losing our homes family turmoil, chaos at work. God gives us an extra gear. And somehow, there's a voice inside us, and I felt it, and you felt it, that says, peace be still. It is well with my soul. It means that we can experience God's peace in the midst of the most trying life circumstances. But that only happens when we've got the armor of God on. If we try to face those same circumstances on our own strength, through our own discipline, what happens to us? We get creamed, don't we? We just crumble and we get emotionally upset and physically sick. But when we get the armor on, then God does what only God can do. And he brings peace that passes understanding. And it's a promise to us. But there's one other element, and that's peace with others. Peace with God, peace of God, that's for us. But we're also called to be soldiers of peace. In his very first public teaching, as he started his ministry, Jesus sits on the mount, and he teaches a huge number of people, many spiritual lessons. One of them we have come to categorize as the Beatitudes. You might have heard that, that title. Well, in one of the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, 9, 
Jesus is quoted as saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Do you get the irony here? God has called us to make spiritual war with peace. God has not called us to be these super overconfident, condescending Christians who at the point of the sword demand that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are not called out to go and to judge and condemn people for their lifestyles. God has called us to make war with peace using the weapons of love and sensitivity. Not being shallow. And it's not that we don't share what God has said about things. But we do it through the weapon of peace. We do it through the weapon of love and sensitivity and genuine, authentic compassion. See, that's the characteristic of a soldier of Christ. We fight with peace. And that's why we are exhorted, like we're exhorted in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Because that's who we're called to be, peacemakers. Help people find peace with God through Jesus Christ when we share the amazing offer that God has given to every man and woman. As we demonstrate the peace of God through our own life trials and circumstances and how we, 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 we just keep depending on God and keep loving him. And then as we bring harmony into the lives of people, and it's got to start with us. Peace with God, the peace of God, peace with others benefits us and protects us because it ushers in peace with ourselves. And why is that so important? Because Satan's a vulture. He's an opportunist. And when he sees that we're not at peace with ourselves because either we're not at peace with God or we don't have the peace of God or we're not at peace with others and we're all in this disharmony and all this chaos is going on in our life, he knows what? It's another open door for him to come in and to attack us successfully. Because he's always what? What did Peter say? He's always prowling. He's always roaming around looking for someone. Why? Because he cannot bring that into our life. He looks for opportunities that are already there to take advantage of. One more weapon today. Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all this, now note that he says in addition to all this, he says, he says oh yeah, there's another optional weapon. Now remember, we've got to put on the full armor. All of it's important. We need every piece of it. So he says, in addition to the belt of truth, in addition to the breastplate of righteousness, in addition to the boots of peace, he now says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. One of the most important pieces of weaponry the Roman soldier had was his shield. They actually had two different kinds of shield. One was a small, round, circular shield, about two foot in diameter, and it was used for very close-hand combat. Normally, it was used when they were chasing an enemy who was fleeing. But the primary shield of a Roman soldier was a thurios. It was this rectangular shield that you see in the picture. It was about, about three and a half, four feet high and about two and a half, three feet wide, and it was curved. That was his primary shield. 
And the shield was primarily given to the Roman soldier to protect them from blows by other swords, from spears being thrown at them, but especially from archers of the enemy army. Because the archers would shoot thousands of arrows into the sky at the advancing Roman army trying to take them down. What in the the day of battle, and that one of the strategies in this day was also to, to wrap those arrows with cloth and soak them in pitch and light them on fire. So they were firing flaming arrows at you. And, and if the arrow hit you, it could do mortal damage to you. But even if it didn't hit you, what it could do was hit the ground and splatter around you or, or hit your shield and splatter and, and spread fire around. So what they would do is they would take these shields that were built of, of hardwood and they would cover them with leather and then they would soak that shield before they'd go into battle. So when those flaming areas, arrows came, they would be extinguished. The shield was a vital part, and it was one of the reasons that Rome became the most powerful military force on planet Earth because of how they used it. They used it in one of two ways. They used it as a wedge. And they would get side by side, and they'd have their lances out, and they would just march forward in a wedge and drive through the enemy lines. But where archers were present... They would form what they called the tortoise formation. The tortoise formation is, is that picture on the, on the lower left on the screen. It shows that some of the soldiers have their shields above the formation, others to the side, and others yet to the front and back. This was like the first tank. And this formation, called a phalanx, would just go out into the field, and there would be hundreds of them, and sometimes they'd be miles long, and they would just march over. And no matter how many arrows they shot, they couldn't penetrate this covering of shields. This is where your close order drill comes from. You know, we see today and we, we marvel sometimes at the demonstration teams of the Army and the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force and their precision marching teams and they're going and they all turn at the same time. And, and today it's a lot of pomp and circumstance. It's fun to watch, but in that day, that's why they used it. Because they could turn that whole thing with a command and everyone would change position and they'd just start marching in a new direction. So that phalanx would march wherever they want and they would just literally walk over their enemies. Shield to shield. Now, we have a shield of faith. Why? Because Satan is going to continually, continually keep firing fiery darts at us, firing arrows at us, firing arrows of discouragement, firing arrows of doubt, firing arrows of defeat, firing arrows of distraction, firing arrows of devastating circumstances. He's going to keep fighting and shooting arrows constantly. He's never going to get tired of it. And he has an unlimited arsenal of them. Bad stuff is going to happen to believers. You know, it's just not the unbelieving world. It's not the, not the wrath of God. That comes later on in history. What's happening is that all of us are getting shot. All of us are being fired upon. Christians get cancer just like the unchurched people do and unbelievers do. Christians have financial problems just like people who don't have any faith do. Christian marriages have troubles just like every other marriage. Christians lose their jobs, lose their homes. Christians have chaos in their families. It's, 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 it's all the same. Bad stuff's going to happen. We're, we're not, we don't get a free ticket because we've trusted Jesus Christ and we're members of the family of God. Jesus promised the exact opposite. He said, you follow me, you're going to have to carry a cross. It's not going to be easy. Because Satan's going to work harder on us to prevent us from helping others find the truth. 
Bad stuff happens. Now, here's what the shield of faith is. Here's how you recognize the shield of faith in your life. That when this bad stuff happens, you respond with the shield of faith. You believe God and his word rather than Satan and his lies. You say, I I know this is bad. This is tough. This is hard right now. But God has said this about, and I'm going to believe you, God. I'm not believing these lies that Satan is trying to put in my head. And not only believing it, but the shield of faith means that you act on what you say you believe. Oh, in the good times, we'll say, oh, God is my rock. God's my fortress. Oh, God will never leave me. God will never forsake me. Oh, God will provide for all my needs. It's easy to say that in the good times. But start getting a barrage of arrows fired at you. And then it's saying, I still believe. I still believe. And I'm not going to let this beat me down. I'm not letting Satan win this battle. I'm not falling. I'm not going down. I'm hanging behind this shield of faith because, God, I believe what you have said about yourself. I believe what you have said about your relationship with me, and I am not going to be defeated. Now, that shield does that. And God talks about it over and over again, not necessarily using the same analogy of a shield. But he says that, for example, when a temptation comes, he says, no temptation has seized you but what is common to man. And whenever temptation comes, God says, I promise I'll give an avenue to escape it. Temptation comes, we're saying, God, I don't have to yield to this. I believe what you have promised me. There's an avenue, there's an escape route someplace. Now, we can build the power of that shield. And you say, how can I strengthen my shield of faith? How can I build that power? Well, one of the most important ways is, is by an increasing knowledge of God's word. If you're going to say, God, I believe what you say. I believe your word. I'm not going to believe the Satan's lie. Well, you better know what God said. If you don't know what God said, what are you claiming? And how are you going to know what God said? Through God's word. For example, when, when Satan's shooting an arrow of discouragement at you, then you know that Psalm 34, 17, and 18 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenheartest and save those who are crushed in the spirit. Satan's firing those arrows of discouragement at you, and you got that shield up. And Satan's saying, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God, God hates you. God's abandoned you. And you're saying, no, the righteous cry out, and the Lord heals them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is brokenhearted. He's close to them. When he fires an arrow of doubt at us, God doesn't love you. God's fed up with you. God's had it with you. You failed too many times. You're useless. You're a spiritual failure. Then we know that God's word says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. When Satan's saying, God doesn't love you, God's hating you, we're saying, it's a lie, it's a lie. I believe what God has said, and God has said, nothing can separate me from his love. When Satan shoots that arrow of failure at us, and defeat, and he says, what are you thinking, you're not God material, look at you, you did it again, you failed again, you're back on your face again, you failed over again, then we know that Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have the imputed breastplate of righteousness, and God doesn't see our unrighteousness anymore, and therefore we are solid with God. But we got to know what the Bible says, more about that next week. But also... 
increasing victories over Satan's attack. I've never gone into combat, but I've got to believe that those who do wonder if all the training they've had will work. Whether all the uniforms and weaponry and defensive things that they're given will really stand the test. Whether that, that chemo, that bio suit will, will withstand any biological attack. Whether that gas mask will really work. Whether that, that flak jacket will, will, will keep a bullet from penetrating the chest. And you know, once you get in a skirmish and once they find out these weapons really work, what happens? Confidence builds up. Say, you know what? This stuff really works. This really does. It, this works. Well, see, as you, through the weapons and the armor of God, experience more victories, and God gives you victories because you are wearing the belt of truth, and you've made your stand, and you know who you're following, and God knows it because he sees it in you, and Satan knows it and sees it in you, and you've got that breastplate of imputed and practical righteousness on. Your feet are fitted with the, the boots of peace, and you've got the shield of faith up, and you start having victories, you'll start gaining confidence in your relationship with God, and you'll start having confidence in your ability to make warfare against the enemy, and then look out. Then you start holding your head high. Then your shoulders are back, not in pride, but in humble thanksgiving and faith from God. That's the shield of faith. Remember this. The shield of faith, as was the Roman thurios, is designed to be used in concert. See, even with our armor, we're crazy to try to fight this battle on our own. I might have all my armor on, and I might be behind my shield of faith. And Satan may do his best. And he can do a lot, can he? And it's one thing for me to go, I believe you, God. But get Brad standing up on this side of me. And get Raphael standing on this side of me. And getting Gilda there. Getting Melanie over here. And together... We start a phalanx. And we say, I don't care if you come up above, my brothers and sisters are got their shields over my head. I don't care if they come from the side because I got brothers and sisters with their shield over there. And I don't care if you try to surround me because I got brothers and sisters with their shield back there. And I don't care if you come head on because we've got our shields up. And we are united in Jesus Christ. We are the army of Jesus Christ. And Satan Jesus has declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Amen. Listen, you got to put on the armor. I need you to put on the armor because I need you. I need you to help me make warfare against Satan and his attacks in my life. And you need me and we need each other. We're in this together. That's why Jesus Christ created the church. And that's why scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Because we're going down when we try it on our own. It's going to be a lot harder to fight that battle. But shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, there is no end to what we can do.
And that's the vision for this church, that this church will be a shield for the community of hurting men and women. And they'll be able to come here to the sanctuary of God. And they'll have men and women who won't judge them, but who'll love them and say, come on, under our shield. Until your shield is strong enough, until your armor is all on, and together we will win. Put on the armor of God. Let's bow our heads. One more week. A couple more pieces of armor. Do you have the armor on? Or you've been getting spiritually beat to death because you took it off. And all of a sudden you're going, oh my word. What was I thinking? Hey, listen. Don't listen to Satan's lie that God is fed up with you. No, he's not. He's already put on you through your faith in Jesus Christ that imputed birthplace of righteousness. And he's not looking down at that. He's looking at your potential. He's not looking at at your challenge. Right now, come back to God. Say, God, I'm getting back in the battle. I'm putting the belt of truth on. I'm putting the armor on, God. And I'm going to learn how to use it effectively. Not for my glory. And not just for my protection. But for the holiness of your name. But maybe you're here this morning and you've not put on that most critical piece of armor, that breastplate of imputed righteousness. You're not covered by the righteousness of God. God is still fully aware of your unrighteousness because no payment has been made for your unrighteousness. You're still carrying the full load and it's right out there in view of God. And because it's there, God cannot have eternal fellowship with you. If he had to turn his back on his own son dying on the cross, what would make any of us think that God is going to wink at us and our unrighteousness? But we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to live under that threat because God has made provisions through Jesus Christ to robe us with his righteousness. Has he, you allowed him to do that? Over and over again, the Bible says this comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever put your faith only in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as your savior or have you been putting your faith in your denominational affiliation or your membership with some church or worse yet, with your own good conduct and own good character? Right now though, God's dealing with you. And right now, you sense his presence and he's speaking softly to you but maybe very powerfully. This is why I brought you here. I brought you here to receive this forgiveness. I brought you here so that I can put on you the breastplate of imputed righteousness. Right now, God's speaking with you that way. While no one's looking around, please, everyone, bow your head. Right now, God is reaching out to you. Just so I know whether there is a man or a woman here today that has that need. No one's looking around. I won't embarrass you. Would you just slip up your hand and say, you're talking to me, Pastor. That's me. I've never trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But I feel like I need to. 
Father, from the testimony once again today, we have all trusted you as Savior. And God, again, I I pray, I pray that's true. I, I pray it's true. Because for us not to is the most frightful consideration of all time. Lord, now that we all agree that we are brothers and sisters, that we are all adopted through the mercy of Jesus Christ. And God, help us to take seriousness, the war, seriously the warfare that we're engaged in. And Lord, help us not to be defeated by it, but help us to be encouraged by the promise that we can be victorious over it. So for that man, that woman, that couple, that family who's in turmoil right now, I pray for your power. I pray that you will re- revisit them and and, and give them a resurgence of their faith and their power. God, don't let them believe the lies that Satan's trying to get them to believe. God, right now, help them to turn it around and say, right now, right here, I'm believing you, God. I've got my shield up, and I'm marching forward with you. I believe what you say about me and not what Satan says about me. Lord, protect us. Use us for your glory. To the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.